Miss Scholars and Saints and back with another chapter of Saving Beauty by Byung Chul Han. This one is entitled Beauty as Reminiscent. Hmm. Do I imagine proofs will be introduced and referred to here? I do. Alright, but we start off with a reference to Walter Benjamin. Walter Benjamin raises recollection to the status of the essence of human existence. So recollection, reminiscence. It is the source of all the power of internalized existence. It also accounts for the essence of beauty. So what is the relationship between memory and beauty? Is what I'm thinking right now. Even amidst beauty's blossoming, it remains inessential without recollection. Essential to beauty is not the presence of immediate brilliance, but the past of a recollection and its afterglow. So this kind of makes me think that Han is creating space for beauty as narrative, beauty as life with a sort of very human time attached to it. Thus, Benjamin appeals to Plato. The words of Plato's Phaedrus testify to this. But when one is fresh from the mystery and who saw much of the vision beholds a godlike face or a bodily form that truly expresses beauty, he is at first seized with shuddering and a measure of that awe which the vision inspired, then with reverence as if at the, go- the sight of a god. At this sight, his memory returns to that form of beauty, and he sees her once again enthroned by the side of temperance upon her holy seat." Faced with a beautiful form, one is reminded of the past. For Plato, the experience of beauty is a repetition of the past, a recognition. So that's really interesting. I wonder if I can go back to this quote and... Okay, so the memory part. At this site, his memory returns to the form of beauty. So... When you're looking at something beautiful, let's say a godlike face or bodily form, you are remembering, according to Plato, something that is akin to knowledge that is deep within our soul and existed, connected with us before our incarnation of this moment on earth this particular planet in this realm so you know it's a very platonic idea that we're not learning anything new not really discovering anything whenever we how we know something is true is that it feels as if we already knew it and that was just reminding us whatever we've encountered of, of truth it was reminding us of the truth we already have, which I think is a really beautiful, kind of lovely way to describe those particular moments that I think we all experience. You know, we've all read something in a book that just seemed so impactful and 
touched our hearts to such an intimate and deep degree that it felt as if we were, you know, coming home. Faced with a beautiful form, okay, I sorry, I read that. The experience of beauty as a recollection evades consumption. So this is Han's whole thing. He wants to evade consumption. He doesn't like what extreme capitalism has done to any part of human life. What is consumed is always the new. So I don't know if I read the second part of that. I'm just going to read that sentence again. <coughs> Sorry. The experience of beauty as a recollection evades consumption, which is dominated by an entirely different kind of temporality. I think this element of temporality, this conversation of temporality is really interesting. What is consumed is always the new and not the past. Recognition would even be detrimental to consumption. Because you think about how consumption needs and production needs, they need efficiency, right? You want to mass produce as fast as you can, as cheap as you can, get it out, get it sold, produce more and make more money. You know, and, uh, and so there's there, a slowness that might introduce quality, beauty, true functionality. What happens when we don't have time for that? The temporality of consumption is not a having been. Recollections and duration are not compatible with consumption. Consumption lives off splintered time. It destroys duration in the interest of maximization. Just think about the change of temporality when you moved from, when we, we moved from the farm to the factory. The flood of information, the rapid cutting sequences which force the eye quickly to digest what it sees. Hello, Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts, and TikTok. Also do not allow for lingering recollection. Digital images cannot attract attention in a lasting fashion. They quickly eject their visual stimuli and fade away. I'm gonna snap a lot. I wonder if that's really hard on the ears when you're listening to this. I'm gonna try not to. Marcel Proust's key experience is the experience of duration triggered by the taste of the madeleine dipped in lime blossom tea. It is a moment of recollection. A tiny drop of tea expands into a vast structure of recollection. Proust is afforded a small fragment of time in the pure state. Time is compressed into a fragrant crystal of time, into a vase full of sense. This liberates Proust from the fleetingness of time. And there's a quote here, but I just want to interject. What do you, so we can all think about it, what do we not get to? What do we not experience? What feelings do we not feel? when we put such pressure on ourselves in the day, even if we have a lot of free time, but if we are filling up that time, however much of it we have, with to-do lists, productivity goals, and we always feel like we don't have enough time, 
and that we're behind as well. How is that experience of life different from forgetting about time, not doing things in the name of profit or productivity or accomplishments or success or checking off, but just being. Almost like doing nothing or wasting time, but in a very meaningful way. You know, I think doom scrolling is a wasting of time and doing nothing, but that sucks energy. But I'm talking about an experience or a moment or a situation of energy gifting that has to do with what someone might describe as doing nothing. An exquisite pleasure had invaded my senses, something isolated, detached, with no suggestion of its origin. And at once, the vicissitudes of life had become indifferent to me, its disasters innocuous, its brevity illusory. This new sensation having had the effect which love has of filling me with a precious essence, or rather this essence was not in me, it was me. I had ceased now to feel mediocre, contingent, mortal. So there's this kind of elevated experience that he's having that's described here. And it causes one to spend oneself. Um, and it sort of has like a healing effect, it seems. And it's not that we can't, it's not that we can just ignore the material or the productive, successful side of things. But I think so many of us, even in our intellectual pursuits, even in our pursuits that where we're contributing to society in some way, whether it be through education or you know whatever it may be, we still need to balance that with a truly spiritual feeding our souls. What feeds your soul? And why do you feel like you don't deserve time to do that? Proust's narration practices a temporality which founds duration within an age of haste in which everything, even art, is brief. Proust's narration opposes the simple cinema, cinematographic, what is that? cinematographic vision. It's like I, I looked at that word and I was like, oh, I'm going to be able to say that so quickly. But then I was not. Cinematographic, where's the accent? and cinematographic time, <laughs> sorry, which disintegrates into a quick succession of point-like presences. The exhilarating experience of duration emerges from a blending of past and present. The present is touched, enlivened, and even fertilized by recollection. And this cause I began to divine as I compared these diverse happy impressions. Diverse yet with this in common that I experienced them at the present moment and at the same time in the context of a distant moment so that the past was made to encroach upon the present and I was made to doubt whether I was in the one or the other. 
It is not the immediate presence and contiguity of things that is beautiful. Essential to beauty are rather the secret correspondences, note his rhetoric, between things and ideas that take place across vast spaces of time. Proust believes that life itself represents a network of relations, perpetually weaving fresh threads which link one individual and one event to another, and that these threads are doubled and redoubled in life by life to thicken the web so that between any slightest point of our past and all the others, a rich network of memories gives us an almost infinite variety of communicating paths to choose from. Beauty occurs where things turn towards each other and enter into relations with each other. It narrates. Like truth, it is a narrative event. And he has another quote here, but I want to pause and say that maybe one of the the reasons that Han has this chapter and is talking about the past and the present is because of what he just has written right here. The element that this kind of way of thinking and living time, the way it has to do with connection. So Han feels that one consequence of the information commodification age that we're in right now is that we are atomized that nothing is connected no one is connected and I'm going to go back to Twitter again what I would like Twitter to be is not what it is (laughs) I think currently I think a lot of people want Twitter to be and this is not a criticism of the platform, it's more a criticism of the users and how we are using it. What it is, is back to that comment in my other video about it being ego-driven, where everyone is just, or most people are just posting something quickly and it doesn't get much response, it doesn't get much engagement, and then you just move on, but you don't stop posting, right? And so what else are we supposed to do if we don't get engagement, right? But when when we do get engagement, or when we do try to engage, it's very hard to make a connection. To make a connection, you really need someone to be in the mindset of growth and community, and enjoyment of creating relationships. When the agenda is, for what reasons I really don't understand at all, to compete and to be contrary and to one-up someone else, to gather attention. Oh, am I about to agree with Han? <laughs> It does feel very narcissistic, you know? Um, oh, I don't want to agree with Han about that. <laughs> my, 
my problem with Han using narcissism is always that I feel a lot of loyalty to the clinical definition of it. And I feel as if making, turning it into a colloquial term and usage is, uh, is not in service of the clinical term. And in the experience, therefore, of people, mainly people who have been narcissistic supply and victims of narcissism, um, it's, not, it's not a lovely feeling. But that is what's happening on Twitter. It's narcissistic because one, people do not have the mindset of humanizing the other, but of objectifying the other as fodder for the building up of one's ego. You know, a narcissist just wants to get your attention. A narcissist will do anything to get your attention. It doesn't mean they just want to poke and they want to incite and they love the drama. They love the energy that you are feeding them when you react in any kind of way. And it's really hard when you're trying to build a community and you want to make connections and you want to create an experience with someone else on the site. Truth will be attained by him, the author, only when he takes two different objects, states the connection between them, and encloses them in the necessary links of a well-wrought style. Truth, and life too, can be attained by us only when... What is that? Horn. Okay, it's gone. Sometimes I think, like, is it a tornado? Sorry. And life, too, can be attained by us only when, by comparing a quality common to two sensations, we succeed in extracting their common essence and reuniting them to each other, liberated from the contingencies of time within a metaphor, thus linking them to each other through the ineffable efficiency of the combination of words. I mean, that sounds like a deep connection and experience and encounter, right? Necessary links, a well-wrought style, a quality common to two sensations, reuniting, liberated from the contingencies of time. Like, have you ever had a conversation with someone where time seemed to stop or in other words you were no longer conscious of the time that was being passed you're no longer even conscious of yourself and there's a freedom in that because you're able to transcend the self and truly connect with the other and when you finish that conversation you feel cleansed and you feel washed why can't every encounter with every human being be like that. The internet of things which connects objects with each other does not have a narrative nature. Communication as the exchange of information does not recount anything. It only counts. 
So counts likes, counts tweets, counts how long you've been on Twitter, counts Instagram posts, counts followers, counts subscribers, counts watch hours. There's a lot of counting going on. Narrative links, by contrast, are beautiful. Today, addition pushes aside narration. Narr narrative relations give way to informational connections. The amassing of information does not yield a narration. Metaphors are narrative relations. They let things and events enter into a conversation with each other. And that's what we're missing, right? I mean, what is the point of Twitter if it's not to have a conversation? The task of the writer is to... Med... Oh, here's another word. <laughs> Metaphorize? Metaphorize. <laughs> that is to poeticize the world. Who is the translator of this? Um, the writer's, okay. Um, the writer's poetic perspective, no, I'm sure it's Hans fault. The writer's poetic perspective discovers the hidden liaisons, liaisons, like, oh my gosh, I can't read, between things. Beauty is a relational event. A specific temporality is inherent to it. It evades being enjoyed immediately because the beauty of a thing only appears much later in the light of another. As a reminiscence. And I mean, I guess reminiscence or the afterglow is a part of a really great, I used, or we used to call them, I think my generation maybe, or maybe it's everyone, but back in college, everyone wanted a coffee shop conversation. That was like the ideal. It meant kind of like, you know, being in a coffee shop when it's dark and it's like there's smells of like raspberry syrup and chocolate and coffee everywhere. And there's like music, the lighting is low and you're in this comfy, like intimate little booth with someone and you are just, you know, a friend, whoever. Um, and you're talking about life, you're talking about things that are just exhilarating because, you know, they transcend the mundane. How many of our conversations do that? But the afterglow is that feeling of how you feel when it ends and you each are, you know, go home in your separate cars or whatever. Um, and you are basking in like, you know, I think I used the idea of being cleansed the, uh, you know, just a minute ago or a second ago, but, um, you know, it has an impact. You don't have to go and rest because you're drained. It's the exhilaration of a party where you've, you know, felt things. <laughs> it consists of historical layers which emit a phosphorescent glow. Beauty is something hesitating, a latecomer. Not the present brilliance, but the still afterglow is beautiful. This reserve accounts for its nobleness. Immediate stimuli. That's really interesting. 
because again, I'm reading Sartre and he focuses on the future. He kind of disregards, well, he definitely disregards the past because that the past is not anything of freedom unless you have the perspective of, you know, you're constantly rewriting the past when you're thinking about it. The present also is somewhat disregarded. And now I wish I just, I don't know, when I go back to being nothing, I'm going to have to look for this. But I was reading a passage in it and it just, it was so curious. Like I, I keep asking, why is he, why is he doing that? But he's looking at the future because the future is where our possibility is. I guess in the present, we're kind of living decisions, but the future is open. I just think it's really interesting because I feel like Han is somewhat doing that, although he says that actually, well, no, he's not doing that at all. Well, he's disregarding the present, Um, but very much, you know, I mean, I guess the whole chapter is about the past, so... And probably what he is critiquing is not only the present, but really the future. So it's, it's not Sartre at all, I guess. <laughs> this reserve accounts for its nobleness. Immediately, immediate stimuli and excitations block the access to beauty. So I feel like he feels like our content on social media, because I feel like that's mainly what he's calling out. But just, you know, art in general, even even TV shows or movies that are put out. I know when I'm watching something, and I can say that when I wish they would have dif- went a different direction, maybe they didn't because that wouldn't get sales. I didn't finish it, I thought, (laughs) there. Okay, let's go on now. (laughs) Things only unveil their hidden beauty, their fragrant essence, belatedly via detours. I think I was going to ask how, and I wasn't, but I'm gonna put it in the form of a question now. How can we make our social media content linger? I think by conversation, honestly. Long-lasting and slow, that is the pace of beauty. One does not happen across beauty in an immediate encounter. Rather, it occurs in the form of a renewed encounter and recognition. The slow arrow of beauty, the most noble kind of beauty is that which does not carry us away suddenly, whose attacks are not violent or intoxicating, this kind easily awakens disgust, but rather the kind of beauty which infiltrates slowly, which we carry along with us almost unnoticed and meet up with again in dreams. I mean, is that why so many of us can't sleep? Because sleep is something that takes time, that requires time even before our 
heads hit the pillows. We're so addicted to stretching out the day into junk light that we can't wind down. 